Thank you, Bonnie and Linda, as always. Alrighty, let me take a drink. We have a lot to go over today. Um, all right, so we have finished Genesis in regards to it actually, you know, proper. So now we're going to do some review. Um, this sermon actually was preached July of 2018. Can you believe it was that long ago? I know. It's been a long time since we finished Genesis 11. <laughs> um, but no, this is an overview of Genesis 1 through 11 because in my mind, Genesis 1 through 11 sets the foundation for who we know God to be. Um, and so these are the major points that we get from Genesis 1 to 11 that are so important for us to know, okay, this is God. This is who we're talking about when we mean God. Um, <clears throat> and with that comes a lot of, it's, it's heavy on philosophy, of course, um, theology, but it's necessary for us to go through. And I, I'll say one quick thing about this too. Recently, Libby came up to me <coughs> and she asked, um, how do we know that people didn't just make up things in the Bible, and then just make up what we hear. Um, so that's a very complicated answer, um, because you can, you can just go simply with, okay, well, I, we believe it, and that's enough, and that's sufficient. But there's more to it than that, because there's actually more answers that I could give, too. Um, and I think it's important for us to know those answers. It's important for us to be able to say, okay, we're going to look at these answers, we're going to understand these answers, because when we are questioned, whether it be by our children, or whether it be by our friends, our neighbors, or our family members, um, yes, it's true, we are saved by grace through faith, and that's sufficient, but it's also good to be able to say, you know what, but our God is complete, and he is eternal, and he is wonderful, and he has given us so much to know him by, and let me tell you how. Um, and so that's what we're going to go over today. We're going to go over what Genesis 1 through 11 tells us about God. So that way, when we go out into the world, we can say, hey, you know, this is what God tells us about himself. Here's some, here's some information. <coughs> so, um, so we're going to go forward. Um, Godspeed, everyone. Genesis 1 through 2, 1, 1 and 2, and Genesis 8 through 9. And this is where this point comes from, these passages. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Um, all right, so from the beginning of Genesis, we encounter two very different things. The first is God, and the second is the created order. As we see in the text, God is far above the created order. In fact, without God, there would be no created order at all. So it is, we find something interesting, and that is how great our God is to bring all of the universe into existence. Now, before we go too far, one also wants to consider just how wonderful the Genesis origin story is in comparison to other origin stories of the same time frame. We already looked at the Babylonian understanding, and that was way back when we did Genesis 1, and how the god Marduk how he killed the goddess Tiamat to create the world. Now the truth is we find many other creation accounts in the ancient world like this. And in some ways there are similarities between the Genesis account and the pagan accounts. But the truth is while they have similarities, um, it's the differences that are the key. For example, when it comes to the Egyptian mythologies, the gods do not come before the pre-existent matter. Instead, they are brought about by the matter. One Egyptian myth actually has the first god, he comes out of the mountain. 
In this sense, we see the difference between what we read in Genesis and what we find with the Egyptians. In Genesis, God does not come out of anything. Instead, everything else comes out of God. Likewise, there is a difference, too, in the general polytheism. That's a belief in many different gods, which was around during the same time period. For one, the polytheistic religions, such as those in Egypt, in Babylon, in Persia, Acadia, Samaria, Greece, Rome, they all held the belief that the gods were connected some way to nature. Thus, the Egyptian god Ra was associated with the sun. In Sumer, the god An was associated with the heavens, and his consort Ki was associated with the earth. We remember Aphrodite's in the Greek culture for love and especially fertility, and the same for Venus in the Roman culture. Thus, for these pagan beliefs, the gods were associated with nature. They were bound to nature. One worshipped the god then in various ways, which would result in the blessings, and they worshipped them through the god's means. Thus, if you wanted children in ancient Greece, one would worship Aphrodite by going to her temple and worshipping through intercourse. That was the way they pleased and honored the gods. And if one pleased them, then the gods would look favorably upon you whether it was in human fertility, or good crops, or even safe travel. In this way, not only could one receive a blessing, but one also gave the god nourishment. It was a way to appease the gods, and to help the gods remain nourished as they took the essence of the offering and devoured it. In this, we see a stark contrast, don't we, between the God of the first two verses of the scriptures and the pagan deities found throughout the world at the time and even today. Genesis does not count a multiplicity of gods, nor does Genesis describe a God in battle with other gods, nor is the God of Genesis a God who is reliant upon anything or anyone. Instead, God is the God of all, the creator of all, self-sustaining and far above creation. We find a God who is sovereign over all matter. He is sovereign over all the world. Not only is he sovereign over this world, but all worlds, all the cosmos is under his sovereignty. If we take the logical step that the scriptures teach us, well, then we come to another fascinating conclusion, which is just how powerful God is by creating all of this ex nihilo. That means out of nothing. Now, we also find something interesting in the text, and that is that the universe has a beginning. While all other religions at the time assumed matter was eternal, Genesis argues differently. Do you know what agrees with this? Ironically, a source some would not expect, and that is modern science. Consider this. Long before the time of modern science, only the Genesis understanding of the origin of the universe acknowledged that the universe had a beginning and was not eternal in and of itself. So consider the following logic. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. If the universe began to exist, then the universe has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore it has a cause. The most logical explanation for that cause is God. For there can only be two things which would cause the universe to begin to exist. 
The first is something abstract, like numbers or shapes, and the other one is a mind or a being. Now, we know that abstract objects do not cause anything to exist, thus it can't be that. The most logical conclusion, then, is that the universe began to exist by God. Now, some might say, why can't the universe simply exist? Well, we know that things that exist do so either in the necessity of their nature or an external cause, which means contingently. So, what is something that exists out of necessity? Well, God and abstract ideas, such as numbers or sets of numbers, shapes. These exist necessarily. What are things which exist because of an external cause or contingently on something else? Well, You, me, houses, books, phones, things that exist from an external cause which would not exist apart from that cause. So the question is, does the universe exist necessarily or contingently? The answer is, it does not exist necessarily. Simply put, there is no reason to assume that the universe should exist the way it exists. Should it have formed differently, then nothing within the universe would exist. If gravity were a little bit higher or a little bit lower, if there was more or less carbon, if the energy were slightly higher or lower, none of these necessary components of the known universe happen because they need to happen. Thus, the universe does not exist necessarily. But what does that mean? It means that the universe exists contingently. It exists because something else caused it to exist. What could possibly cause it to exist? The answer is something which is timeless, something necessary, something that is not material, something powerful, and something not contingent on something else. Again, the only possibility is God. Now, logic teaches us something more. And that is that whatever caused the universe to exist, to begin existing, must be the first cause. In especially the first two verses of Genesis, we find this to be the case. For the first cause is God himself. He alone can cause the universe to exist because he is causeless. Nothing calls God to exist. He exists necessarily. Now, What has modern science found? Well, like it or not, modern science has found the same thing. With Big Bang cosmology, modern science has argued that the universe does in fact have a beginning. That's the main tenet of the Big Bang hypothesis, is that it all started with a Big Bang. Prior to the Big Bang, there was nothing. Now, where modern science gets it wrong is assuming that the Big Bang can simply occur on its own. For as we know from science, nothing can cause itself. And as we just saw, the universe cannot exist necessarily, but contingently. But let's also consider some other facts for fun. It's fun for me. I don't know if it's fun for you. Um, According to the second law of thermodynamics, right, it states that entropy occurs over time. We see this with our own bodies. We see this with the world around us. As time progresses, we start to get older. We feel the effects of entropy. But you know what else does? The universe. Scientists have recognized that the universe will eventually run out of usable energy. 
Why? Because once energy is used up, it ceases to be. If the universe had existed for an infinite time in the past, then all the energy in the universe would have been used up by now. As it is, we find that this is obviously not the case. Thus, the universe must have a beginning. When we take into account how physicists predicted the expanding of the universe, it further shows that the universe had a beginning. If the universe is expanding outward, then it must be expanding from somewhere. As it is, this theory has been confirmed by many scientists, so again, the universe must have a beginning. I'm going to show you a picture real quick. In this picture, it's kind of like this. The Big Bang starts, and then boom, it goes out. And that's the basic premise. It has to start somewhere. It doesn't just exist forever in this direction. It starts at that point and then goes out. So, do you know who isn't surprised to find all these things to make sense in the world around us? The Bible. All of this stems from the very first verse. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. No other ancient text comes close to what we find in Genesis. Likewise, no other view, past or present, offers a better explanation for the universe than what we see in the text. Thus, when there are those who argue for some other reason for the origins of the universe, consider these thoughts. When others say, well, what makes the Bible different? Well, politely inform them that it speaks of God as creator, not as created, unlike gods of pagan religions. It speaks of the cosmos of having a beginning, uh, which is something even modern science has agreed with. And it places God above the created order as the first calls. The first verse of the scripture speak to us in this regard. It beckons us to think about the universe in this way, to reflect on what it exactly means for this God to have created the cosmos. It should cause in us great wonder and a great sense of awe over this God who is the creator, who is far above all else. When we think about how large the universe is and how it is created by this magnificent creator, all that we should do is fall upon our knees in worship over what he has accomplished. The end result for all of this should be nothing more than adoration, praise, and complete willingness to follow our God. For the whole universe has been beckoned into existence and it follows his decrees. So it should cause us to do the same. We have been beckoned. And we too should seek to follow his decrees. Follow him wherever he has called us to be. And in whatever manner is most pleasing and glorifying to him. While we certainly do not want to say that the biblical authors necessarily thought about all these things the way that we are able to see today. The truth is the very first verse of the Bible argues something truly remarkable. Truly different than what we receive from any other source. It gives us the foundation for the universe itself, and therefore it gives us the foundation for all reality, and that is God. In this, we see the sovereignty of God on full display, and his sovereignty should cause all of us to rejoice in knowing that he is our God. He, who has created all things, 
has sought you and he has bought you and he loves you through his son Jesus Christ. The same Jesus who was before all else. So praise his name. For the Lord has brought forth this cosmos in all of its wonder for his great glory. So that's the first point. We've got more. Aren't you excited? I am. Um, All right. (coughs) This next point is going to be review for some of you who went to um, Climber recently. Uh, So here we go. Genesis 1 through 3 and chapter 8. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called light night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Calling this the wise God. Right after Genesis 1, 1 and 2, comes obviously Genesis 3. And with this comes a great deal of information about the created order, from Genesis chapters 1 through 3, actually. (coughs) Oftentimes, (coughs) we focus so much on the creation that we forget about the vast riches found when it comes about learning who this God is in creation. For example, what we find is a God who distinguishes We see this with the first three days of the week. The first day God creates light and then he distinguishes light from the darkness. The second day he distinguishes the waters from above from the waters below. On the third third day he distinguishes between the waters and the land and further vegetation from vegetation within the land. What does this tell us about our God? Personally, I think it reminds us that our God is wise. Oftentimes we talk about wisdom, but what exactly does wisdom mean? What is wisdom? A lot of times we'll say it's coupled with knowledge, which is to say, um, which is in some way true. But it's also not knowledge either, is it? One can know things without being wise. Ask Carissa about me. (laughs) Still, others will say that wisdom is what you do with your knowledge. Now, I think we're getting a little bit closer here. It's part of it. In fact, that leads to the medium between the two, and that is while knowledge is gaining understanding, wisdom is the ability to make judgments, to discern. Thus, we see in the text that our God is one who discerns. He discerns between light and darkness, between heavens and earth, between waters and the land. But we also notice another aspect of his discernment, and that is when he calls elements of the creation good. By calling them good, it reminds us that our God is good, and it is from him that all good things come. He is the one who defines what is good, and therefore what is bad. He discerns between them. Thus, what we find from the beginning of creation is wisdom. This should not surprise us. Consider the book, what we find in Proverbs 8. Wonderful passage. I mean, this is what it says. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. The first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first 
before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding in the water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the foundations of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, when then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. Who's talking there? Wisdom. Wisdom. Thus, as we see, wisdom is from the beginning. It is with wisdom that God created the heavens and the earth. It is the wisdom of God which brings all the creation from chaos into order, from formlessness into form. From darkness even into light. Our wise God created this entire cosmos with the purpose of wisdom behind it. He discerned what the universe needed to be for his utmost glory. And from this comes what we perceive and what we experience. Interestingly enough, science actually argues this very point. The fine-tuning of the cosmos is evident in what we are able to perceive. Many do not know that scientists have found that there are certain constants within our universe that if altered, life would not exist. In fact, each one has to be so precise that to be changed, even minutely, would mean the universe would not be able to be a habitat for life. If you don't believe me, consider what we mentioned in the last point, gravity. If the constant for gravity in the universe had been even slightly altered, then the universe would not be able to permit life. The best way to describe this is to imagine a dial divided up in 1 in 10 to the 60th parts. If the dial is set at any one of those points other than where it is set, then the universe would not be able to exist. It would either have collapsed in on itself, or it would have expanded too quickly for stars to form. The best way to describe just how momentous this number is, is to imagine all the cells in your body. That is one in ten to the fourteenth parts. Or all the seconds since the beginning of the universe, assuming an old universe exists and is in view, 1 in 10 to the 20th parts. Said another way, let's imagine that you had a radio where you could change the dial of the radio and receive a different station. Then let's imagine that the radio had each one in 10 to the 60th and each part was a different station. Then the number of the stations would look like this. Go ahead and put that next one up. It'll be fun. Okay, I guess it's not on there. Never mind. (coughs) There it is. It'll look like that. 10 into the 14th part. So that's 1-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0. That's a big number. Um, 10 to the 20th. That's a little bigger. 
10 to the 60th. That's what we're talking about, what needs to be for gravity to be where it's at. If it's one higher or lower, nothing. Crazy. Now let's imagine that there was only one station on your radio that was actually playing songs you wanted to play out of that big, big number. Or better said, it would be as if all but one radio station played static. And in order to get the one station that didn't, you had to set the dial exactly right. That's what we're talking about. The difference isn't songs on the radio. It's how much gravity or how little gravity there is. If the dial is set to just one of those numbers, life wouldn't exist. So that's a lot of numbers, right? But scientists and philosophers also notice that it's not just gravity, but also the expansion rate of the universe, which is driven by the cosmological constant. If this had a dial and it was changed by one part in two, 1 in 10 to the 120th, then again, life would not be able to exist. Yeah. That's pretty intense. All right, so those are two scientific examples. Can we see any more? Sure can. Thanks to mathematician Roger Penrose, we certainly can. Consider that if the mass and the energy of the universe, specifically those related to neutrinos, photons, atoms, dark matter, were not evenly distributed as they were, there would be no life. Dr. Penrose has postulated that they must be set exactly right from one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd. This number is ridiculous. Consider that what we said earlier. It was simply the number with that many zeros behind it. So if you notice that, 10 to the 14th was 1 with 14 zeros behind it, so forth. When we say 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, we are saying the number 1 with 10 to the 123rd zeros behind it. Now obviously, if you try to use a calculator, it's going to fail. It can't even calculate that. Still, if any of them, any of these neutrinos, if the dark matter, if um, photons, all of that, had been changed, it would mean no life. Fascinatingly enough, even though Dr. Penrose had made this calculation, and he stands by it, and many seem to accept it as valid other physicists, he's still an atheist. Luckily, we have many philosophers, such as Dr. William Lane Craig and um, Dr. Planiga, who say, wait a minute, we need to ask something. What could possibly cause these numbers to be dialed in so precisely to allow for life to exist? How is it all so fine-tuned? Well, there are three that scientists and philosophers come to. The first is necessity. It is necessary for the universe to have these numbers dialed in. As in, the universe could not exist at all unless this were the case. Unfortunately, there is no evidence that it is necessary for the universe to have all these numbers perfectly in place. There is nothing in nature that would suggest that the universe might be life-permitting. And most agree that it is actually incredibly more likely um, that the universe would be life-forbidding rather than life-permitting. The second possibility is mere chance. Is it possible that we just got lucky with our universe? The answer is, not likely. 
Scientists will tell us that it is chance, but in order to claim that this is the case, they have to go beyond the realm of science into the realm of philosophy, which, if you're in Sunday school, knows it doesn't go well for them. They do this by proposing the multiverse theory. The multiverse theory holds that there is one machine which creates universes, and ours just happens to be one which is life-permitting. What's the problem with this? Well, first, there is no verifiable evidence that the multiverse exists. They cannot prove it by any scientific standard. Likewise, it doesn't explain the reality that the machine that makes the universes would also have to be fine-tuned in order for it to make universes to begin with. Thus, what made it so fine-tuned? There is no evidence to suggest that such a machine must exist, thus they would have to go to chance forever. So what is the final explanation for the fine-tuning of the universe? Design. Scientists reflect on the fact that the universe is so ordered as to permit life that they even recognize design as an impression upon the universe. In other words, someone or something so set the boundaries of the universe to allow life to exist. This is the most plausible explanation as to why the universe exists as it does and how there is life, any form of life, in our universe at all. Personally, I find that this is the case of what we see with Genesis 1 through 3 and Genesis 8 through 9. We find in the first six days of creation a fine-tuning of the universe. It may not describe all the fine-tuning which modern science can discover, but it does describe God creating a universe with a design plan. Um, We see this each day. God brings forth different elements, from light to the separations of the heavens and the earth, and the earth and the waters. And this brings us back to the first point of all of this. How wise... Is our God to create a universe such as the one in which we inhabit? Our God's knowledge is vast and complete, but the fact that he knows exactly how much of each element to add in order to bring about his creation is a witness to his wisdom. He purposefully created the entire cosmos for the particular purpose of his glory. He brought about the creation of the universe and then ordered it so that it would fill his own grand design. If one were to study the history of science in Europe, and one to consider all the great scientists who came out of with so many revolutionary ideas, you would find that the early uh, scientists to be theists, many of them were Christians. You would find them praising God in their studies because they recognized the great design which the universe gives testimony to, just as the scriptures say. They very clearly saw the design, the telos, the ultimate purpose of each thing within creation. We see it ourselves when we plant and harvest. Consider it. When you plant corn, or your neighbor plants corn, are you expecting them to get barley in return? Or if you were to have an apple orchard and you planted apple seeds, would you expect blueberries? No. No. Because the telos of the seed, the objective of the seed is to grow into an apple tree because it's an apple seed. The same is true with animals, with fish. You won't have a hammerhead shark mate with a hammerhead shark and then get a dolphin. Why? Because the telos, the objective, the end result will be something which is deeply buried within the DNA itself. 
And the DNA, the source code, is designed to bring forth a baby hammerhead shark. We see all of this not only in the extremes in the universe, but the everyday agriculture and the everyday nature we experience. Which is why so many early scientists would be observing all these things, and then suddenly in the midst of their notes, they would say, praise God. He has accomplished so much through his wisdom. Now the question we want to ask is, have any of us praised God for his great wisdom in creating the known universe as we see it? Have we ever stopped to consider the magnitude of his creation and stopped in awe, not of the creation, but the one who created it? Have we stopped and thanked God for the marvelous world which he created and how the world was made to bear fruit of its own kind? Have we thanked God for the marvelous nature which exists, which truly echoes to us the glories of God on high? The point we find about God in these early passages of Genesis is that he purposefully designed the universe. We find a God who is far greater than the universe itself. When he speaks, it listens. When, he cre- um, when his creative word is uttered, the universe responds. Thus we find a God who is vastly superior to all other gods known to man. We find a God who is not controlled by nature, but who controls it. We find a God who is exactly as we would expect as we reason with the universe which we see. Again, how great and mighty is our God? How wonderful are his ways? If the first chapter of Genesis and further is teaching us anything, it's to remind us that our God could easily have chosen to make himself beyond our comprehension. Yet, he reaches down to us and he saves us and he redeems us and he teaches us about who he is in his personhood, in his might, and in his glory. What else can we say of what we've learned from Genesis already? For all that is left for us to do is to join the heavens as they declare the glory of God. All right, we got one more. You excited? You guys tired yet? My voice is going. I don't know if I'll make it. (laughs) All right, here we go. This one comes from Genesis 3, 4, 6, 9, and 11. Or specifically, we're going to look at Genesis 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All right, final thing that we've noticed, or not the final, but the last one we're going to talk about today. Something else we've noticed uh, in Genesis is the ramifications of the fall in full effect. (coughs) The human race as a whole has throughout the first 11 chapters of Genesis especially fallen far beyond from where God had first made us. Being made in his image to enjoy him in obedience to him forever, to the moment before the flood, for example, where God has pain in his heart for even creating us. 
As it is, what we find in these chapters after the fall are a reflection of what we find in ourselves apart from God. For it is here, in the midst of the sorrow and sins of these generations, that we've looked over that we find humanity at its worst in all of its broken relationships. First, in the broken relationship with God and living in in disobedience to him. Second, in broken relationships to one another in the uh, domination of others, as we've seen. Third, in the broken relationships with the world in which the very clear boundaries set by God in creation are broken and tested. Yet all of these broken things stem from a society, a people, who have no interest in God. The pre-flood generation are individuals who did not desire to know God or to love God. They did not care for God, for his glory, for him at all. Instead, they were a generation who lived for self, growing in power and growing in their sins day after day. Not shockingly, we find this of the generations after the flood as well. And if you look around today, we continue to see the same thing. Is it so surprising that the end result of such a people was sin? I think not. For when a person desires to live as though God does not exist, and when that person becomes a group of people, and a culture, and a civilization, then all that will remain is darkness. Thus, the way the text describes these individuals as poignant. They were a people who did only evil and only ever thought evil even in their hearts all the time. And a people so proud as to trust in themselves rather than God. Now the question we want to ask is, how is this relevant to us? Well, I think it is very relevant to us as we consider our own world and our own time which we live. For as we see, there are many who would seek to push God away from the table, so to speak within our culture and many cultures to bring God to the table of discussion is to be ridiculed, is to be ignored, is to be called all sorts of interesting names. Yet where does such a culture, where does such a world end up? All of this makes me think of Frederick Nietzsche and his parable of a madman. I love this parable. I really do. Now consider what he says. The madman. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage, emigrated? Thus they yelled and they laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God? He cried, I will tell you. We have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained the earth from its sun? Whither is moving now? Whether we are moving away from all suns, are we not plunging continually backward, sideways, forward in all direction? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as though an infinite nothing? 
Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need a light lanterns in the morning? Do you, do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? God's too decomposed. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? Was what was holiest and mightiest of all the world has yet owned, has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become God simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed. And whoever is born after us, for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners. And they too were silent and they stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern on the ground and it broke into pieces and went out. I have come too early, he said then. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars requires time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than most distant stars, and yet they have done it themselves. It has been related further that on the same day the madman forced his way into several churches And there struck up his requiem aeternum deo. Let out and called to account, he said always to have replied nothing but, What after all are these churches now, if they are not tombs and sepulchres of God? I personally always find this writing to be interesting. Nietzsche is recognizing the repercussions of what it means for a world to exist without God. During his time, and even in his own work, many philosophers were trying to picture, trying to imagine, even bring about a world in which God did not exist and what that would mean for humanity. In his work, he recognizes that it would lead to a detachment with virtually everything in society. Hence his symbolism of drinking up the sea or wiping away the horizon. Some believe that it was thought that it is this thought which made him believe that the century after his would be the bloodiest century of all time. He was right. The 20th century was just that. A world in which more individuals died through warfare and genocide than any other in the history of humanity combined. But despite foreseeing this reality, Nietzsche, he held out hope. One of his famous ideas is that out of chaos comes order. He believed that once we stripped away all of these beliefs in God, and once we had this time of transformation, then it would end. It would lead to a better world. The question we all need to ask is, has it? Has it led to a better world? I think we can argue no. You see, these philosophers believe that the departure of God and the cutting off from God would lead to a better world, but the truth is it hasn't. 
The reason why is that once you cut off God from the world, then it naturally leads to everything Nietzsche predicted, a world unhinged. We see this in our own world today when it comes to morality. Consider the question, is it possible for people to be good without believing in God? Now, personally, I would say yes. It is possible for people to be good without God. In fact, we see people who do not believe in God, doing good things all the time. And even Jesus recognized that the pagans knew good things even without having God. But that isn't the real question. The question is not, can you do good without believing in God? The question is, can you be good without God? Or does good exist without God? If there is no God, then there is no foundation for objective moral values, for right and wrong, for good and for bad. As it is, we know what is good, righteous, just, loving, gracious, merciful, kind, because they're a part of God and God's own character. But what happens when God is taken out of the equation? Well, then that leads to the subjective moral values. What does that mean? Well, when something is subjective, it means that it is based upon the subject's preference. A good example is cereal. I enjoy Frosted Flakes. You might enjoy Wheaties or Cocoa Krispies. These things are subjective. We are the subject and we have our particular preference about them. When morality is described as subjective, it means that we each have our own morality, our own way of defining what is good and bad, and right and wrong. Now this may sound nice at first, but think of where that leads. If everyone has their own subjective moral values of right and wrong, then that means that there is no absolute standard for right or wrong. If there is no absolute standard for for these things, for right and wrong, then it means that your preference is just as valid as my preference. But if that is the case, then none of us can say anything is actually truly evil. So, for example, if morality is subjective, we cannot say that the Nazi regime was wrong and that the Holocaust was immoral. Nor can we say that the shootings in the U.S. these past few years have been wrong or evil. Nor can we say that the sex slave trade is wrong and evil. Why? Because if morality is subjective, then those who commit such acts have their own morality, and we have no right to say that their acts or their morality is wrong. But as it is, we do not say that their, that morality is subjective. Instead, we recognize that morality is a objective. We recognize morality as an absolute standard apart from us, and that is found in God. It is through God's character we can know what is right and wrong, good and evil. Through his commands we learn what is morally good and right. For example, the command to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. um, And to love your neighbor as yourself. These are moral commands that lead to moral duties, what we should do. Yet they all stem from the same place. God. He loves, therefore we should love. Likewise, this leads us to being able to condemn what is evil by what does not reflect that command. So if we hate our neighbor, if we cheat them, or if we rob them, or if we speak ill of them, discriminating against them, then we know that such acts are evil because they do not reflect loving one's neighbor. If God, however, is taken out of the equation, then again there is no moral duties or moral standards. Does this fit our experience? I would argue no. Simply put, if we see an event occur which is evil, we instinctually know it is evil. When we see injustice, we say, this is injustice. We make a bold declaration that there is objective moral values.
So how does this relate to Genesis? Well, in Genesis we learn that the people were in sin. They were wicked. This terminology defines morality. They were not living in a way which was moral. Instead, they were living in a way which was immoral. Because we know what was immoral is that which is against morality. And we know morality because we know God and his commandments. In our own society, we deal with the same thing. In our own society, we deal with individuals who do not have God, do not want God, and live however they want to by their own standard. We who are of the faith cannot boast to look down upon them, because in truth, we were once part of them as well. We were once in the same sphere of influence, which tells us that God does not exist. I can live however I want to, and I can do whatever I want. But now that we are in Christ, we can know that we are like Noah. We have found favor in God's sight. We can live in a way which is in congruence with God's own moral character. We can love. We can be merciful, kind, gracious, and just. We can now, because we have been redeemed by Christ, because God has found favor with us despite our sin. Now, I find it fascinating to consider Genesis thus far and how it keeps arguing for the existence of God. Consider it. Genesis 1, we learned that the universe had a beginning. We remember the argument was, if the universe has a beginning, then the best explanation for that beginning is God. But we also learned how the universe is designed, and that we see the design of the universe here and now, and how everything needed to be set perfectly in order for life to exist in our universe. Now we find one last argument, another reason for the existence of God, and that is morality itself. For you see, the generation of Noah and the generations which followed after even, they are not so different from our own. In fact, it is no different from our own because in the end, the generation of Noah and those after merely shows us the reality of a people without God. Thus, any people without God will reflect the generation of Noah. It will reflect the evil found there because even if there is good, they do not glorify or praise the God who defines what good itself is, and instead they take the glory which belongs to God and they give it to themselves, placing themselves above God just as Adam and Eve had done in the garden. Ultimately, we are all sinners at heart, and each one of us needs a new heart that seeks to glorify God instead of self. So it is, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Seth, Noah, Ham, Shem, Japheth, the Babylites, and even Abram, they're not so far from us. For as it is now, we reflect on the sorrow of humanity from then unto now, and how we all share in the guilt, we all share in the darkness, which is humanity outside of Eden. Indeed, a humanity seeking to live in a world as though God did not exist. But as it is, God does exist. And so we have joy in knowing that all the created cosmos has a foundation in our great God and in his son, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for this world, which you have created. Um, And Lord, there's so much we could do to discuss who you are. There's so much time that could be devoted into learning more about you through your scriptures. There's so much time we could discover what it is that you have done And how powerful and mighty and wise you are. And how good you are. And so Lord, as we go forward and as we encounter individuals outside of this congregation who ask us about who you are, let us remember, Lord, that you are a God who is a creator, that you are wise, and that you are good. 
and that we can give them and tell them about who you are and how you have saved us through your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we go forward and as we enjoy our meal together, we ask that we would be blessed with the fellowship. We ask that you would be with us, and we ask, Lord, that we would know your presence, the great God of gods, the great King of kings. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.